forgiveness. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7. And whoever is doing the screen, if they do anything wrong, it's my fault. Uh, I, I have good notes, but I'm not that great of a follower. So if I skip some or jump around or throw things that aren't there, it's my fault unless Nathan's the one doing the screen, and then it's totally his fault. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Grace is God's gift for our salvation. Amen. Christ was given for us, and in him the very riches of God's grace are found when we find the forgiveness of sin. If your sins have been forgiven, you are richly blessed tonight. And so I can't teach on forgiveness without teaching about grace. And you can't teach grace without teaching about Christ. And of course, we all need grace because the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I heard it described this way once, and I like it. Um, Sometimes we foolishly compare ourselves one to another. But I heard it described, and it's a great visual, said our, our attempt to be righteous or self-righteous is like two men trying to jump to the moon. If we're comparing ourselves one to another, then we can see one gets quite a bit further than the other, maybe two or three times as high. But from the perspective of the heavenly, there isn't a whole lot of difference in the best of us and the worst of us. Our efforts fall short when the measuring stick is the fullness of Jesus Christ. And so whenever we couldn't reach the Lord's perfect standard, God, in the form of a servant, in human likeness, descended to where we are. Grace is directional. It's from God down to us. And so He descended to where we are, and then he descended a little lower, and he died, and he was buried. And thank God he arose, testifying to the victory and the life that can be found in him. That's the gospel. Quite simply, that's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection. He died to atone for our sins. And so if you are here tonight, and you're questioning with all that I've done... Will God forgive me? I can say quite literally that he was dying to. By his death, we live. It's a simple truth that a lot of people trip over, but the witness is actually all around us. In every visible living thing, death is essential for life. If you look at the food chain, one animal dies so another can live. Even in plant life, this is what Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. We're surrounded by witnesses that God wants to give you a new life regardless of what your past is, and that Jesus died so that all of us could live eternally. 
We've got the witnesses of nature. We've got the witness of the scripture. We've got the witness of the Christians around you when you see how God has changed their life. We have the confirming voice of the spirit. The cross, they're all testifying to the same thing. And if I can convince us all of this tonight, then it was worth the drive out. The cross is essential and sufficient to cover every sin and to truly grant forgiveness and to give you eternal life. Romans chapter 5 verse number 19 says, Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And then verse 20 says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. My goal for this session is for you to be convinced that there is abundant grace. Not just enough, but abundant grace. There is sufficient grace. There is abundant grace. And you can have assurance that you are the recipient of that grace unto everlasting life. Do you know that you're saved tonight? Do you know that you're saved? Not just in your head, but in your heart. You know that you have been forgiven. You know that your past has been cleansed and your sins have been remitted by the power of the name of Jesus. You, if that's not your testimony, you can know before you leave here tonight. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm going to spend a considerable amount of time, at least I'm honest, right? I'm going to spend a considerable amount of time laying my foundation, justifying, I guess I should say, my first two points. Because you may not have heard what I say tonight exactly how I say it. And if it sounds wrong initially, then keep listening. I think you'll agree with me before it's done. Uh, and then we're going to move in to my close where I'll try to reiterate what I just said. But first, there are a couple things that I really feel we need to look at that we rarely get the opportunity to in the typical church service. There are a couple things that the Bible warns us about that can put us outside of the realm of grace. I want, I want to start here so that we can be sure that we know that we are not disqualified. I, I want to be qualified to receive His marvelous gift. And then, like I said, afterwards we'll talk about the greatness of that gift. And so the first thing we want to look at is presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins. Contrary to popular opinion, not all sins are created equal. If you don't believe me, if you've ever cheated on a test, consider the difference if you had cheated on your wife. They're not the same. And the Bible uses different terms. It's not only common sense, it's good, solid Bible. The Bible uses different terms for sins. There are 
trespasses and there are iniquities and there are faults and, and then there are sins and abominations. There are various expressions that distinguish between these. It's said that some have great sin or great wickedness or grievous sins. The Bible even describes sins that are natural sins and unnatural sins. You can sin against your own body. There are classifications of sin. And the judgment is not always the same either, at least the terminology for the judgment. It speaks of the recompense of your error. It speaks of sorer punishment and greater condemnation. Unfortunately, we don't have to figure all that out because there's just one judge. But there are some sins, I believe, that are bigger than others if we compared sin to sin. However, when we consider the judgment of God, even the smallest of sin is far too weighty for us to carry with us. And so our focus is not what is the bigger or the worst sin or what will receive the worst punishment. Our goal should be salvation. And I'm telling you tonight, this type or classification of sin, presumptuous sins, uh, are sins for which there is no answer. Now I know that Jesus specified that blasphemy against the Holy Ghost was the sin that could not ever be forgiven. And then John wrote and he spoke about Sin that leads to death. And he said, you don't even need to pray about that. These are the extreme end, the final results, if you will, of seemingly small sins that the Bible classifies as presumptuous sins. Would you say it with me? Presumptuous sins. I looked this up in Webster's Dictionary. And it said to be presumptuous is to be unwarrantedly forward, impertinent, without humility, or without repentance. I then looked in a reference, a Bible reference book, and it described presumptuous sins as when you intentionally do wrong, or intentionally operate in a manner in which you do not have proper rights or permission, defiantly sinning. The Hebrew in the Old Testament that is translated presumptuous literally means to sin with a high hand. To sin with a high hand. It's painting the picture of intentional, shameless, willful disregard of God and His will. Now, we all have sinned. Even the strongest of us have feet of clay and we're susceptible to fall on occasion. But not all of us willfully and defiantly, defiantly continue in sin. Paul explained um, this, the, the natural propensity of men to sin in Romans chapter 7 when he said, I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. 
But I, I see a law in my members that wars against the law of my mind. Have you ever found yourself in that struggle? There is a desire to do right, but there is also a desire to do wrong. He said, it brings me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We've probably all been there. Our flesh is weak, even though our spirit is willing. I need deliverance from this body of death. And we cry out for the Lord to save. This is the cry of a repentant sinner, not the words of a presumptuous sinner. And there is a world of difference between the two. Now, thankfully, before I move on, he doesn't, that was kind of a downer. So thankfully, he doesn't leave us without hope. The very next verse says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. The answer for sin in your members is Jesus. God is always, always able to provide the necessary mercy for repentant sinners. Psalms 103 and 8 says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. The Lord's anger and judgment has to wake, work its way through a whole lot of mercy. God knows that we need mercy. He knows that I have good intentions, but I fail in execution. God recognizes our lofty desires and our lowly position. The danger is when we don't recognize our lowly position. When does sin go from a weakness to a presumptuous sin. It's when we elevate our desires above His desires and our will above His will. And instead of justifying God, we try to self-righteously justify ourselves. Presumptuous sins, let me remind you, will put you outside the realm of God's grace and mercy. I'm going to repeat that a few times because I want you to remember it. But I'm also going to try my best to prove it to you. Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 through 29, give us instructions regarding sacrifices in the Old Testament system that the Lord found to be acceptable. And these were provisions that He made because of men's propensity to sin. But then we arrive at verse number 30. The person who does anything, not just big things, not really nasty things, anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people. The person who would presumptuously sin, not the size of the sin, the category of the sin. The penalty for that was death without mercy. 
This command is immediately illustrated in the very next verse when a man gathers sticks on the Sabbath. Not that big of a sin, you wouldn't think. A minor sin, but in this case, they've been warned about intentional sin and it was indicative of a heart that rejected the will and the word of God. And so that sin cost him his life. The external evidence was that he broke the Sabbath. But it was evidence of a much bigger problem, a rebellious heart. The penalty for the presumptuous sinner in the Old Testament law was death without mercy. Now, this distinction can be illustrated a lot of different ways. One, um, I think, striking picture is when we look at the life of King Saul and King David. Saul is known more for his failures than his victories. He is a cautionary tale. The problem was not that Saul sinned. Because David, who is a hero of the Bible, also sinned. In fact, if we were going to describe his sin, I would think it would be much more serious. And yet, he's described as a man after God's own heart. And the Messiah was of his lineage. And it was said that the mercies were the sure mercies of David. One man's sin assured his condemnation and the other man's seemingly greater sin did not have the same effect, but instead he found sure mercies. David, like a fool, unintentionally stumbled into a trap. And lust, when it was conceived, brought forth sin. And then sin, when it was finished, brought forth death. The prophet came to him after he had sinned with another man's wife and had even had that man's life taken to cover up the sin. The prophet came to David and confronted him. And if I was a little more prepared, I would have had... Uh, this on the slide because this is a tremendous verse. I believe it's 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number 13, I believe. If you don't know it, you need to memorize it, and obviously I need to as well because I'm not even really sure where it's at, but I think that's it. The prophet comes to David and he confronts him with his sin. In David's immediate response, David said to Nathan, I have sinned. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. All in the same verse. His mercy is amazing. Saul, on the other hand, never experienced that because he was presumptuous. The people were fearful and Saul was trying to to, to remain in command and some were 
deserting him. They had waited on the prophet. They had waited for seven days. And he couldn't afford to lose his men. He couldn't afford for his men to lose their morale. Where was the man of God? And when the answer didn't come, Saul decided, I'll just take matters into my own hands. And so for the sake of his position and because of the opinion of the men that were around him, he chose to do what he knew was not lawful for him. This was not a simple matter of yielding to temptation, but he decided to step into the role of a priest though he was not called by God for that role, and to offer a sacrifice. Have you ever heard it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? Or kind of the Christian version, well, after we do it, we can ask God to forgive us. You have to be careful. Sin, sin can become very dangerous when you're presumptuous. Saul made room for intentional sin in his life. He crossed a threshold that he didn't realize he had crossed when he chose his will over God's. And as soon as he was finished, if he could have waited just a little bit longer, but as soon as he was finished, he saw Samuel arriving and Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, you have done foolishly. He said, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. You've chose to follow your heart, and so God found another. Two chapters later, we see King Saul continue in his self-willed defiance. The problem with presumptuous sin is not just the particular sin, but the attitude that produces the sin. It pushes a man away from God instead of drawing him near. Saul was instructed to utterly destroy the enemy, but instead he chose to keep the spoils. And the prophet comes and he says, I thought you were to utterly destroy. How is it that I hear the sheep if you have destroyed them? And, and Saul, unlike David who was quick to confess his sin, Saul is self-willed. He begins to justify his disobedience. Well, it's for a good cause. You need to understand the circumstances. This is for the people. We're going to offer a great sacrifice. We're going to show the people that God is on our side. For a pretense of being on the side of God. That's how he justified it. And Samuel said in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, 
and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. In desperation, Saul grabs his garment and it tears with the force. And the prophet says, God has just tore the kingdom from you like you tore my garment. Why was Saul rejected? I think Samuel explained it a little bit in verse 17 when Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? When you were little, when you were humble, God raised you up and gave you what you never deserved. But now that you're presumptuous, God is going to take what he gave you away from you. It's very dangerous to be presumptuous because you are big in your own eyes. And whenever you engage in presumptuous sins, you will find it very difficult, near to impossible, to truly repent. Presumptuous sins will cause your nature to change. It can change a man's mind and even his character. You become high-handed. And it's hard to find a place to humble yourself and be high-handed at the same time. So Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 tells us to exhort one another lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can learn to quench the spirit. You can learn to sit in the house of God but live without God. You can deceive yourself and be poor and naked and think that you are rich and clothed. Where you, you can become so hard-hearted that you can't be touched or feel anything. Can you imagine day after day or even service after service silencing the voice of God? Silencing the minister of God and even learning to silence your very own conscience. If you reach that place, how can you turn? Let me warn you again that there is a sin unto death. When Jesus came, he was rejected by what was described as a faithless and perverse generation. No one had ever loved like Jesus, and yet it wasn't enough. No one had ever done the signs that he did, and it still wasn't enough. He had a perfect understanding of the word, but even he couldn't teach it good enough to turn them. He had the purest life. It was said none had ever spoken like him. There was no fault. And yet it still was not enough. What was the problem? Why were they lost when the God of heaven had come expressly to find them and save them? 
They were dying lost because of a heart condition. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 15. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Listen to the Lord. I would heal them, but they have chosen to close their eyes. They've reached the place where the word of God, the word that is so powerful, it spoke everything we see into existence, spoke light into darkness, could not illuminate them, even when the word came in flesh. Can you imagine Jesus being here tonight and looking at us and sadly shaking his head and saying, some of these people just are unreachable. It isn't that he doesn't offer grace. It's that there are some people who will never receive grace. Presumptuous sinners eventually reach the place where there is no answer for them. In fact, even mercy will heap condemnation on them. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse number 11. Are y'all still with me? Because we still got a while away to go. You might as well get comfortable. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse number 11. I know it's a little heavy on the front end, but I think we'll be happy by the end. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse number 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Men reject the word and deserve punishment. God gives mercy. They see there's no punishment. And so they set their heart to fully continue in the evil that they are doing. Isaiah chapter 26 verse number 10 says, Let grace be shown to the wicked. Yet he will not learn righteousness. Grace is supposed to be a teacher. But there are some people that grace just cannot teach them anything. Because they will not learn. Probably the most famous example of someone being hardened by sin is Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 8 verse number 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, there was mercy. When Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Much has been made about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He didn't do it by forcibly hardening it. It's not his will for any to perish, not even Pharaoh. It's his will for all to repent. He hardened Pharaoh's heart by extending mercy. When Pharaoh received relief in his obstinance, he saw mercy as weakness. And so he continued in his disobedience. He was presumptuous. 
presumptuous sinner will reject the command. He will harden his heart against the word of God. And when or if judgment comes, he refuses to relent even under the hand of God's judgment and hardens his heart further. If the Lord chooses to extend grace and mercy, he still will harden his heart. What is there left that can be done? The same mercy that delivered Israel condemned Pharaoh because he was presumptuous. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now I want to be clear, I don't have time to preach the entire context, but this passage is not saying that backsliders can't repent. I'm thankful backsliders come home. And the Father runs to meet them. The author is simply acknowledging that it is time to move on. There is no reason to keep laying the same foundation of faith whenever people don't want to hear or heed the judgment of God and the call for repentance. There's no reason to keep trying to repackage the same thing to these people when they've already experienced the grace of God. There's nothing else that anyone else can do to renew them. I can't preach it better when you've already had the Holy Ghost. It's joy unspeakable. What can I say to you if the Spirit itself wasn't enough? And we can't sing it better, and we can't explain it better, not when you've already tasted it. When someone knows the goodness of God, all we can do is pray for them and love them and hope and believe that they'll come to themselves before it's too late. There is no other answer. It's dangerous when someone is presumptuous. They are on a very dangerous road. Jude, in the fourth verse, wrote about men that had crept into the church. They are ungodly men. What makes them so ungodly? Why must we contend for the faith and fight against their influence? Because these men turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They turn the grace of God into a license to sin. And so they are condemned because of grace. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially though, especially, and especially, I do stutter a little bit, but not that time. Especially, those, especially 
those who walk after their flesh, their desires, in the lust of uncleanness, and they despise authority, they are presumptuous and self-willed. Don't be discouraged if you battle temptation. God knows how to deliver you. However, there are some in the church that are entertaining temptation, not battling it. And they are reserved for punishment, especially the presumptuous and self-willed. How bad is it? Peter continues in 2 Peter 2 and 21. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. This gospel is either the best or the worst thing that ever happened to you because you're going to give an account. How twisted does your heart have to be for the gospel to become a curse? Let's look a little more at the sad plight of the presumptuous sinner. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent. When one has wicked intentions, they have a desire to continue in sin, but make a show of religion. It is better for them to not even offer a sacrifice. Our God is not for sale. You cannot buy His favor simply by putting tithes in the offering plate. You insult Him by giving if you refuse to give Him what He really wants, which is your heart and your very life. Proverbs chapter 28, verse number 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law. Notice this is intentionality. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law. Even his prayer is an abomination. The strongest word that I can find for sin is an abomination. It is a sickening act. You insult him when your mouth is near to him, but your heart is far. As if you can deceive the God of heaven. You will not sweet talk your way into eternity. In fact, Psalms 109 and 7 says that the wicked man's prayer becomes a sin. The wicked man's prayer becomes a sin. As long as we are willfully rebelling against God, nothing else matters or does any spiritual good until we repent. As long as you stay in that state, there is no forgiveness. I hope you'll hear me tonight. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the great covenant we have and the blessings we have. Jesus is the sacrifice. He's a greater sacrifice than any before. He's a greater offering to take away sins. And it's all worth shouting about until you hit verse number 26. For if we sin willfully... After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. 
This is not when you're weak. This is not a temptation. This is not slowly growing cold. But you make up your mind. It's willful. I'm going to continue in my sins. And as long as you're in that state, there is no sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. The law of Moses, you would die without mercy because you had rejected God's plan of salvation. But that was Old Testament. We have a better covenant now. You're right. And so if we reject this covenant, you're going to have even greater condemnation. You're not vindicating yourself. You're accusing yourself. Verse 29, of how much sore punishment, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common theme and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God does forgive beyond what we would consider reasonably or reasonable. But I would do you an injustice if I didn't point out that you can reach the place where you will not allow God to change your life. I'm not preaching that there isn't grace. I'm preaching you have to receive grace. James chapter 4 Verse number 6 says, He gives more grace. If you've squandered it all, if you've been a willful, willful sinner, turn from it. He's still offering grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. There's hope for us if we'll just humble ourselves before God. Presumptuous sins will put you outside of the grace of God. But if you will draw near to Him, if you will humble yourself, there are bigger sins than yours that He's already forgiven others of, and He's no respecter of persons. Amen. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? Hallelujah. Before we transition to the second obstacle that can disqualify us from grace or forgiveness, I do want you to consider the prayer of David that's found in Psalms chapter 19. And we'll just read verse 12 through 13. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also. Or some secret faults. Then there are others that can be willful faults. 
And so he doesn't just pray, lead me not into temptation, keep me from stumbling. But he goes on and is a little more specific when he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. He's not just asking forgiveness. He's saying, keep these away. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Lord, keep us from being presumptuous. The second thing that can keep us, we're going to have kind of some hard transitions here, but it's important for us to cover the topic. The second thing that I found in the scripture that can keep you from finding a place of forgiveness is unforgiveness. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 39. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus gives us just one option. We have to love. Jesus compared loving others to loving God. What you may not realize is he was actually quoting from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19 is going to help us to understand what Jesus meant when he said we have to love other people. Leviticus chapter 19 verse number 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor means not to take vengeance and not to even bear a grudge. So in context, we see that Jesus is saying love requires us to forgive. You know, God is so very generous. He's given us so many things. About the only things I find He won't share is His glory and His vengeance. He reserved that for Himself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Be careful that you don't take what belongs to Him. We have to give what we can give, and that's the gift of forgiveness. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. What must you do to be forgiven? That's not a trick question. Forgive, and you will be forgiven forgiven. Jesus revealed the importance of the second great commandment and the priority that the Lord places on it when he's teaching his disciples to pray. The focus of prayer is God. You read the Lord's prayer. It's all about who God is. It's all about his kingdom. It's all about what he can do. There's only one line 
that turns the attention back to what we are expected to do. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is intentionally stated because God's promise of forgiveness is conditional. It's conditional on our willingness to offer forgiveness to those that have wronged us. Mark chapter 11, verse number 25. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything, That seems pretty all-encompassing, doesn't it? If you have anything against anyone, I just don't see how you can carry any grudge into this verse and not feel convicted. If you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Now listen to this. That your Father in heaven may that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Boy, that's a promise from the word that we don't claim. You know, it's easy to justify holding a grudge. If you knew what they did, I'm the innocent party. They're the one that was wrong. I've got a good reason to be upset. Anybody would be. They've proven what kind of person they are. Now prove what kind of person you are. Are you a Christian? The fact remains that Jesus said, forgive anyone of anything so that the Father may forgive us. It's as if he, as if he is asking for our permission. I'm just waiting to forgive. You see, God is bound by His Word. And there is, here is one thing, again, that will stop even the blood of Calvary from being effective in your life. The issue is not whether God wants to forgive us, but whether our lack of forgiveness will allow Him to. Unforgiveness will keep you out of heaven. No amount of sweet prayers of consecration will atone for a bitter heart. No amount of sacrificial giving will atone for holding a grudge. You can let go of all your money, but if you won't let go of your grudge, it won't make any difference. Jesus wants to be the Lord of your life and your hurt feelings. Luke chapter 17, verse number 3. Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now this is interesting. Jesus says to his disciples, Take heed to yourself when someone sins against you. Isn't that funny? Because we want to focus on the person that was in the wrong. And Jesus says that's when you need to be extra careful. And look at yourself. Focus on how you respond. I, 
can't control what happens in my life, but I am responsible, solely responsible for my response. And if I was to be honest, there have been too many times that I've returned evil for evil and offense for offense. And if you do that, you'll return cursing for cursing and you will put a curse on yourself, the curse of sin. And doing this, you are placing yourself under the same judgment as them. When we choose to retaliate, there is no longer an innocent party. There is an appropriate response, and it doesn't involve sinning against your brother, no matter how tempting that is. Paul said, if you sin against your brother, you're sinning against Christ. When you repay evil for evil, you're sinning against Christ. The scripture declares that it's better to suffer from wrongdoing than to take our problems with one another before the world. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just suffer because you're the Christ that people are going to see. I want to remind you of Jesus Christ, the one who said, Father, Forgive them. And I have to represent him. He died reconciling the world to himself. And that's a beautiful thing. But the scripture says he passed that ministry to us. The ministry of reconciliation. Now there are some people who make it a little harder to be a minister than others. Have you met repeat offenders? All right, I've forgiven them, but how many times must I forgive them? Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came to him. I like Peter. I relate to him a lot. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Isn't that what the Lord had said? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, 490 is not the magic number. The point is not for you to keep meticulous records because love keeps no record of wrong. The Lord was simply trying to convey that we must grant forgiveness not just more, but much, much, much more than we are inclined to believe is appropriate. Jesus demonstrated why undeserved forgiveness is expected from us in the parable of the servants. We like the parable, but it's because we rush through the details sometimes. There was a servant who owed a debt to his master that he could not pay. Are you familiar? He fell down like all of us did at the altar one day, and he began to beg for mercy. And his master, the king, showed kindness and forgave him. It was undeserved. We would call that grace. And then he left the presence of the king where he had found mercy and grace, and he came across another servant that owed him. And it was a sizable debt unless you compared it to what he had already been forgiven. 
If you were just a servant, maybe you would care, but he had been forgiven of even more. And so he refused to forgive this much smaller debt. And when the king found out, he was wroth. The servant that had been forgiven was credited back all of his previous debt. Everything that had been forgiven. And Jesus concluded this parable with a warning. Matthew 18 and 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. How many times has God forgiven me? How many times have you found forgiveness where you misrepresented Him, when you were unfaithful, when you know you let the Lord down and you disappointed Him? I can say that He's forgiven me more than I could ever recall and more than I could ever repay. And according to Jesus, if we believe His words, the full penalty of that debt of sin that has been forgiven is going to be required of me if I refuse to forgive those that wrong me. And not just lip service. I love them, but I don't like them. I've forgiven them. And then everything that comes out of your mouth reveals the true condition of your heart. He said you have to forgive from the heart. A heart of love. So what will your response be to offense? There's only two choices. You can choose forgiveness or you can choose bitterness. And it will be one or the other. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 14. Pursue peace with all people. Good people, bad people, difficult people, crazy people, angry people. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. It's not optional. We must pursue peace. When it isn't easy, at least be in pursuit of it. When you struggle to look past hurts and, and, and you've been disappointed time after time, pursue peace anyway. Because if you don't, you can fall short of the grace of God. God's amazing grace that is greater than any sin you can commit can't reach the sin that you refuse to forgive. It just takes a little root of bitterness to completely defile you and destroy your relationship with the Lord and with others. There is no such thing as a bitter Christian. The old saying is true, bitterness does more damage to the one in which it is stored 
than on the one in which it is poured. Sadly, I've seen people eaten up from the inside by the strong acidic burn of a wounded and unforgiving spirit. You cannot fulfill the first commandment to love God if you neglect the second commandment to love and forgive your neighbor because it's like unto the first. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, God said it. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. I've heard people say, well, I can forgive, but I won't forget. Does that sound like Christian love? How can you prove that you really love someone? It's easy to say, but how can you prove it? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent... Does this sound important to you? Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Intentional love. Being zealous. Fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. True love is evident because it forgives. Not a little, but a lot. In fact, true love never fails. I want to make one more Transition here to close. True love covers a multitude of sins. And this is a great segue into talking about the love of God. I've warned you about presumptuous sin. If you know you're in sin, ask God to help you. I'm not speaking about being perfect, but have a desire to please the Lord. If you know that you have hurt or hard feelings, ask God to touch your heart and help you. Because you don't want to be outside of God's grace. His grace truly is amazing. We're justified, the Bible says. That means we're declared righteous. We're redeemed. That means we've, our, our, the price has been paid. We're sanctified. We've been separated from sin. Eventually we're going to be glorified. We're going to be free from this mortal body and its inherent sinful desires. And this corruption is incorruptible is going to put on incorruption. I'm looking forward to the glorification that's yet to come. All of these are very rich theological terms that will help us understand what it means to be forgiven. But since I have just a short time remaining, 
I want to use the simplest terms that I know. We're forgiven because God loves us. The greatest thing, the greatest work that you can do, the work that's required is simply for you to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe in the love of God. Hereby perceive we the love of God that he laid down his life. That's what he asks of us. He loves us. You need to be convinced of that. And so the scripture gives us some analogies to help us. The first we see that God is our father. Have you been born again of water and spirit? The Bible says we're born again by the Spirit. It also says we receive the Spirit of adoption. Have you considered that? There's one experience with one Spirit, and it's a birth and it's an adoption. You have a new birth. There's an innocence like a child. However you were born, whatever way you were born, you need to be born again. And God allows us then, as His offspring, we take on His name and His divine nature and His spirit and the new life that's in Christ. We're born again. That's true for a child that's born naturally. However, that child can be abandoned, that child can be denied. That child can be rejected. The parents, even if they desired a child, you know, you don't get to hand pick the one you got. There's no refunds. You can't send them back. But adoption is different. And many times when parents adopt, they're able to see a child that maybe has some complications. A child that others may say is deficient in some way or, or has physical limitations or, or maybe they have mental handicaps or emotional outbursts. And other people say, they're so difficult, are you sure you want to take this upon yourself? The adopted child does have an advantage over the child that was naturally born. The adopted child is in fact chosen. You were both born of God and you were chosen by God though He knew everything about you, the best and the worst about you. Isn't that incredible that He loves someone like me? I've been blessed with good boys, but they are boys. And on very few occasions, I have to, rare occasions, I've had to correct them. It's relative. Compared to how much my parents had to correct me, I've rarely had to correct them. They have a sweet nature about them. And whenever I talk to them, many times, they're crestfallen. And so I've concluded after correcting them, after chastising them, with the rod of correction. And there's big tears coming down their face. 
I can't tell you how many times I've said, son, I want you to pick up your head. I don't want you to ever do this again, but did you learn your lesson? Because if you've learned your lesson, that was my entire purpose. I'm not mad at you. I'm not upset with you. You just learn a painful lesson. And the scripture compares the correction of the Lord to that very thing. Don't be discouraged even when you've done wrong because God loves you. And when your heart tries to condemn you, he's greater than your heart. I wish we could understand the love of God and how far he's willing to go to forgive us and how much mercy he has for us. There's nothing that my sons could ever do that I wouldn't be willing to forgive. Psalms 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great... I don't know how much mercy you think he has for you, but when you leave here, you look out and you're going to see as far as you can go and you're not even touching the depths of his mercy. As far as the heavens, as high as they are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Verse 14. For he knows our frame. And he remembers. That we are dust. He's not surprised. When you get a little dirty. I'm not justifying sin. But when he wanted a tabernacle. He chose us. For his spirit to dwell in. He could have chose anything. And he chose a house of dirt. Because of his Great love for us. He pities us like a father pities his child. Another picture we see is of a husband. If you have a good marriage, then you've learned to forgive. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, I'm just going to reference it. Originally, whenever the Lord instituted marriage, the man was instructed to cleave, to, to cling to his wife. But then we enter into the law, and this is actually not even speaking specifically of the topic of, or generally of the topic of divorce, but specifically of someone who divorces their wife and then she goes and marries another, and then they come back to the one they've been married to before. And it's forbidding this practice of divorcing one, marrying another, and then coming back and remarrying after having a marriage before. If you want to know more about the ins and outs of divorce and remarriage, talk to Brother Gaddy. 
I'm, I'm going where angels fear to tread a little bit, but there's an important principle here. And so in discussing this situation, the law says when a man takes a wife and he marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness. Literally, it says some nakedness of a thing. Something is, is laid bare and naked before him and he sees something in her, some uncleanness, possibly some immorality of some type. There's some debate exactly what that means and there even was in the time of Jesus. What does this mean? And it says when he finds this in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand and he sends her out and it gives the procedure. Now men used this to justify abandoning their wives. And they taught that it's easy to divorce your wife. Just give her a bill of divorcement. And there were teachers who gathered quite a following by emphasizing how easy it is to divorce your wife if you will simply follow what the law says, you're legally justified. Don't have an affair. Just divorce your wife and then marry the one you want. And you covered your bases. You're justified. It was an abuse of the scripture. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus seeking to entrap him. And they were testing him. Matthew chapter 19 verse 3. And they said to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? What does it mean she has an uncleanness and she's lost favor? Can we just divorce our wife for any reason? And Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In fact, Jesus taught it so strongly that they said, well, it'd probably be better not to even get married when he talked about the commitment of love. They said to him, verse 7, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away. He said to them, they said, why did Moses command this? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I'll just remind you, husbands, though it's not the topic, First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, you're to dwell with your wives with understanding and to give honor to them as the weaker vessel. Now, I mention that because the Lord is not a hypocrite. And we are espoused to be married to Him. And He doesn't ask of us what He's not willing to do Himself. And so while I believe that we must be holy, a bride that's suitable for Him, can I tell you, if he would tell men, don't abuse the law to justify abandonment, you don't have to fear that he is going to abandon you because of the law. He's not looking to get rid of you. His heart is not hard. He is full of tender mercy towards us. And when some uncleanness is exposed and you feel like you won't find any favor, I believe with all my heart that he clings on to us. He isn't looking to walk away. 
He isn't looking to be done with you. He's not comparing you to the Christian that's beside you that seems to be a little fairer. When you make a mistake, he's not throwing you out of his house. It doesn't matter how many times you burn breakfast. You're trying and he loves you and that's enough. When you're weak, he understands your weaknesses and so he gives grace. In fact, even when we've been unfaithful, he's faithful because he cannot deny himself. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm using this to show you the forgiveness of God. If we can learn to love each other this way, how much can God love us and how much will he forgive us because of his great love? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. This is a glorious church. Can I take it a step further? Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. When I said it was glorious, I got a response from you. When I said no spot, no blemish, I didn't hear the same amens. How can you not have a spot? Are we expected to be perfectly holy? It's the work of God. He's presenting it to himself. And he will not be unequally yoked together. He's going to make a bride that is suitable, that is meet like the Lamb of God. We're going to be made like Him. He's not finished with us yet. We're going to see Him as He is on that glorious day. There are two great truths that I struggle to preach and even to understand. And they are two sides of one coin. The judgment of God and the grace of God. I didn't grow up with a television and so I have a very active imagination. And I could conjure up some truly frightening images of the terror of God. I had a certain fearfulness that I was going to be lost. You know, just because I'm socially awkward doesn't mean that I don't have any personal awareness. I, I knew that I had flaws. And so I was raised in church and I wanted to live for God. And I was touched by His presence. I've been in so many powerful services and my desire was to be a faithful servant but sometimes my temper got the best of me and sometimes my lack of discipline and sometimes my fleshly desires and and sometimes I could just continue to feel the list maybe I should say oftentimes and so my hope was that the Lord would come after a night service at church camp when Brother Tim Gaddy was preaching. Or at least on a Sunday night after the altar call. Because if there's one thing I did, I repented regularly. But that's not how you're intended to serve the Lord. 
You'll only be able to go so long serving him by grudging obligation. At some point, you have to become a love servant. There is a span on how long you can serve simply out of obligation. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If you're in the light, you belong here. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we're talking about people walking in the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That little passage transformed my walk with God. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to hope that the Lord doesn't come when someone cuts you off in traffic. It doesn't have to be your best day. There is some assurance that we can have. He doesn't ask perfection. He asks sincerity. Jesus said men were condemned. Why? Because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. As long as you are hiding your sins and justifying yourself, you're going to be condemned. But the moment you step into the light, oh hallelujah, when you come clean before God, when you're trying your best, Lord, I fall short, but I'm striving to please you and I'm acknowledging my mistakes and I'm calling on you for salvation and for your grace. Can I tell you, even in the light you need forgiveness. Walking in the light doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're sincere, you're humble, you're humbly walking before your God, what He requires of you, and you are forgiven by His blood. As long as you're in the light, He is actively cleansing you of all of your sins. And so don't sin, please don't. Don't misunderstand me. But when you stumble... And if you're anything like me, you'll stumble more than you wish you would. Remember that a man of God is still a man. But God is still a God of mercy. And Jesus knows all of our weaknesses. And He is touched by the feelings of those infirmities. He sees us struggling. He knows the trial. And it touches our Father's heart. Our Lord sees us and it touches His heart and so we can boldly approach Him for grace and for mercy and for help. Did you know even when you fall short, He's still on your side? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, isn't that great? There's a balance. And if anyone sins, don't sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ 
the righteous. When I opened, I told you how I wanted to close. I wanted you to leave convinced that you were saved and having an assurance that you have truly been forgiven. Why can we confess and repent and still feel unfaithful and worthy and carry shame with us? It's because we have an accuser. And I know Satan's a liar, but when he's accused me, he has never yet had to lie. I've given him enough ammunition. He can use the truth against me. I'm making his job easy. I'll tell you what his great lie is. We, we have an advocate because we have an accuser. There's one accusing us, so there needs to be one that's speaking better things for us. The question is whose report are we going to believe? The accusers are the advocates. So I want to remind you of Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who? Oh, who would even dare? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's us. He chose us. It is God who justifies. And who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God and who makes intercession for us. Jesus Christ is on your side and he's all that you need. You're complete in him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was going to close, but I see I have four minutes left and I've never been given 90 minutes before, so I'm going to use them all. Numbers chapter 21. The people sin. They sin so bad that the Lord judges them. He sends poisonous snakes among them. They confess their sins. And it's a good thing or they would have all died if they hadn't. The Lord makes a way for them to be saved. He gives Moses a strange command. Make a bronze serpent and lift it up. And the only way they can be delivered is to look at the serpent. It has the appearance of the very thing that's harming them. But look to that serpent and you'll be saved. The next chapter, there is a wicked prophet. I say he's wicked because he's for sale. And he comes to prophesy against them. But when he goes to prophesy, the Lord intervenes. And I want you to hear his prophecy. God is not a man that he shall lie. I'm trying to convince you when he says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. God is not a man that he shall lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will not he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. He has observed. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. He goes on to say, It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. And so I stand here today, 
a forgiven sinner and I say, oh, what God has done. It's not that I've never sinned. It's that when he looks at me, I've been buried in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm robed with the Lord. And so when he sees me, he sees no sin. When he sees me, all he sees is love. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. The Lord doesn't observe any iniquity in the camp. You are in covenant with God and he will not lie. I know we all struggle with our flesh. The very thing that causes death is this flesh. They were being bitten by fiery serpents and it seems strange, but they had to look to the image of a serpent that was lifted up. John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He looked a whole lot like us. This flesh has brought death. But when he came in the flesh and died, it brought life. If you look to Him, you can be saved. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you stand to your feet and lift your hands and give God glory? You can trust Him. You are saved today because of the mercy of God. Thank you, Jesus. Almighty God, I worship you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness in my life, Lord. I could never praise you enough. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I believe, oh, Lord. 